The Lord led me to expound on John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24, with the topic, When Opposition Intensifies. Opposition to Jesus started at the very beginning. In chapter 1 in John, verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world, and when he penetrates into the darkness into the sinful world, the world resists that. It can feel that. It can sense that. And in chapter 5, when Jesus healed the paralytic for 38 years, and the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They thought he violated the Sabbath law. You can't work on Sabbath, but you work by healing people. And when Jesus answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I am working, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only he was breaking the Sabbath now, he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Unacceptable. Oppositions built up. And last chapter that we preached on chapter 6 of John, it's mentioned that many of the disciples turned back and no longer walk with him. In verse 66. And not only that, in verses 70 to 71, and Jesus told them that one of you, the twelve, is a devil. One of you will be saturated and filled with the devil's thought, and he will portray Jesus. And John, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, mentioned that specifically and said that he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You feel the tension. The opposition is intensifying. And when opposition is intensifying, Jesus did three things. First, he follows his own agenda. And then secondly, I will preach later, he, pre he lives with controversy. And thirdly, he confirms his authority. So let's start with the first point. Jesus follows his own agenda when the opposition intensifies. Look at verses 1 to 9, chapter 7. Verses 1 to 9. Let me read to you, and you can follow on the screen or in your uh, own Bible. In fact, we prefer you follow in your own Bible. Verses 1 to 9. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believe in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world can't hate you because it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. You know, it was the time of the feast of the booths or the feast of the tabernacles. Same thing. Six months has transpired since chapter 6. It was the feast of the Passover in chapter 6. And six months later, in chapter 7, the Jews regathered together to celebrate the festival of the booths. And it is a time of harvest. 
festival that falls on October most of the time. And it is considered the most popular of all festivals. And the Feast of the Boats commemorated the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And to simulate their wilderness experience, many devout Jews built temporary shelter out of branches and lived in them for the whole week. It's a whole one-week celebration. And what was he just doing during this six months that John, the writer, did not even mention in the book, in the Gospel of John? Well, you can find them in Matthew chapter 12 all the way to 17. And some of the events that Jesus did during this six-month period, well, he was engaged in more teaching as usual. And during this period, John the Baptist was beheaded. It was a sad episode. And Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration during this time. And he healed an epileptic child by casting out the demon in him. And the Bible says Jesus stayed in Galilee and not going to Judea because of the hostility in Judea. And maybe his earthly half-brothers saw that Jesus was cooped up for too long. They gave him four advices in verses 3 and 4. So the brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. That's the first advice. Jesus, you need a bigger arena. Galilee is too small. And, and he better gets down to Judea, to Jerusalem. That's the capital. That's the center of all activities. And secondly, they said, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. That's the second advice. Your Judean disciples need to see you again. You need to reinforce those ties and show them your miraculous power. And remember, your disciples have deserted you in droves. You need to stop the bleeding. You need to start recruiting. That's what you should do. And thirdly, they advise him in verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. You need to change your game plan. They said no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. By that they met, if you want to be recognized as a Messiah, you have to get to move out into the open where people can see what you are doing. You need to move from obscurity to publicity. In today's term, well, set up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram accounts. Move from local level to a national level. And finally, the fourth advice they gave to Jesus was in verse 4, the second part. If you do those things, show yourself to the world. What things? Why, your miraculous power. Remember, you can perform miracles, but show it to the world. You need a bigger platform. Do not waste your gift. They need to show it to the whole world. You need to build momentum, exposure, build a bigger platform, and people will follow you. But you know what? In verse 5, is so telling, verse 5. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Isn't it interesting? The brothers acknowledge that he performs miracles, but they didn't even believe that he is the Messiah. But no matter what, this is, this is a popular strategy. 
right? Draw a big following, but make sure you keep their loyalty and get them excited with a vision, with a goal. And then with that, move them to achieve your agenda. They will do it for you. Sounds like a midterm election strategy. You know, Satan has offered Jesus the same strategy to derail his mission to save sinners. Satan said to Jesus, turning stone into bread, make yourself relevant, offer something to people, get them hooked, jump from the pinnacle of the temple and be spectacular. Build the wow factor and people will be impressed. Well, and accept glory and fame from Satan by worshiping Satan. You become powerful. No power, nothing gets done. And Jesus said no to all of them. Why? Because of verse 6. Verse 6 says, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus follows his own agenda. His own agenda is to do God's will according to God's timing. The time has not come. Even when opposition is intensifying. Now, Jesus was not licking his wound in Galilee because his ego was bruised by the dwindling number of followers. He was waiting for God's timing to go forward with his mission to save sinners through the way of the cross. And Jesus knew that he would be offered as a Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He would not be offered at the Feast of Tabernacle in chapter 7, but at the Feast of Passover, the next Feast of Passover, six months later. There are six months left for Jesus. So the time has not yet come. You know, Jesus' agenda is follow God's time for him to save sinners. But your time is always here, Jesus said to the half-brothers. They would only be fulfilling what everybody expected of them as a religious Jew, fulfilling a religious duty by going to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of the Booths. And he mentioned that. The world cannot hate you when you go because you are living according to the way it thinks. You're just one of them. You are not raising any questions. You are not challenging anything. They love you, but it hates me. And Jesus was alluding to the opposition that awaited him in Jerusalem because I speak the truth. I expose the hearts of man. I call evil, evil. And they hate me because I tell them the truth. So in verses 89, Jesus go, just advised the brothers, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying that, he remained in Galilee. Jesus encouraged the brother to go. Without him, he followed God's agenda rather than their suggestions. And God's immediate will for him was to stay in Galilee. When opposition intensifies, follow God's agenda in your life.
follow your own agenda as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you remember in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may know the will of God. You see, nowadays, everybody has an agenda. Agenda is everywhere. What is agenda? As I reflected on that, agenda is basically buying and selling. It's a transaction. To get you to buy into something and selling something to you. That's agenda. And most familiarly that we know of is the material things. You go to grocery shops, you can buy a house, buy a car, buy something useful to you, you know, material things. But it's more than that. And you know better. Fashions, ideologies. Everybody's selling something. Disneyland is selling happiness. Starbucks is selling community. Others are selling values. They want to change your values so that you would perceive something else as important. Some sells you beliefs so that your conviction will be in something, and then that beliefs can manipulate you to achieve what they want. Agenda. And of course, you're familiar with success. That's what a lot of the products and advertisement is offering you to make you successful or you look successful, bring you a sense of security, or have a nice image. If you dress in a certain way, if you buy into this, if you follow this trend. Think about that. That's agenda. Agenda is basically buying and selling and buying and selling. Nowadays, practically everything is for sale. Practically. What is our agenda? Our agenda as disciples of Jesus Christ is to follow God's agenda. And Jesus' agenda for you and me is to follow me, follow Jesus. That's our agenda. And make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? By going, by baptizing, by teaching. That's our agenda as followers of Jesus. Then where does opposition stand in all this? Well, opposition reveals your commitment to your own agenda. That's the benefit of opposition. Are you serious about this? Are you committed to this cause to follow Jesus? Is it your priority? And that's why we have trials and oppositions and temptations and struggles of life. It's not pleasant, but it gives you a sense of where am I in my way of discipleship and how committed I am to the cause of Jesus. And I pray that your agenda from God will shine among all other agendas that the world is trying to trade, transact, sell, and get you to buy. But you have bought into Jesus Christ Remember, you have bought into Jesus Christ and you are committed to follow him all the way. Secondly, Jesus lives with controversy. Look at verses 10 to 13. Let me read to you as to follow. But after his brothers has gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? 
And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It's a very short section. And I title it, Jesus Lives with Controversy. See, Jesus went privately now, according to God's timing, so that he would not draw attention. Because with attention, then conflict, with conflicts, God's timing is being affected. He follows God's timing. But Jesus attracts attention even when he is absent. You see, his reputation precedes him, and people were looking for him. And there were two levels, at the leadership level and at the people's level, at the ground level. In verse 11 tells us the leadership level. What are they doing? They are pursuing Jesus. The, the Jewish leaders anticipate Jesus' every move, and they expect Jesus to show up at the feast of the booth. Every good and religious Jewish man and women is supposed to go and celebrate that festival of Duth. They were looking for him not to shower favor on him, but to get him. The Jewish leaders had instilled fear among the general public that any compliment about Jesus is not to be tolerated. Look at verse 13, says, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. But on the ground level, in verse 12, they were murmuring, muttering, murmuring. The multitudes were divided in their opinions about Jesus. Some were favorable. He's good, good man. We love him. Others were unfavorable. He is leading people astray. He can talk. He can teach. And people love his teaching. And he is definitely pointing them to something. And we don't like where he is pointing us. You know? But knowing the Jewish leader's opinion, the best approach seems to be, well, he's whatever. Let's not talk about that. It's too controversial. Jesus lived with controversy. He didn't create that, but just because he's a public person, he draws controversy like a lightning rod. You know, if you're a public figure, or if you are in charge of something, anything, you surrender your privacy. Some more so than others. See, the crowd will come after you if you're a public person. They want a piece of you for their own consumptions. They project their wishes on you. They pour out their grievances at you in the form of ridiculing or sarcastic remarks or entertainment or gossip. They consume you if you're a public person. And they make comments as they wish, and they often get away with any consequences, no consequences. So they, they were very free in express themselves, sometimes a very uh, sharp comments. Public opinion is so prevalent today that, that none of the public figure can be spared from it. See, people talk. The public comments. Neighbors, neighbors pride <laughs> into your life. 
fans, fans, they stalk you. A public figure is a lightning rod. He or she attracts attention, controversy. And you know what? Jesus did not engage them. He lived with the reality of it. He can't help it. He didn't create that. People imposed it on him, but what do you do? Jesus never engaged them. He focused on his mission and the training of the twelve and his disciples instead. See, when you are on mission with Jesus, you are less likely to be distracted by controversy or public opinions. And when it rises, you tend to just focus on what you were supposed to do and keep doing that. When opposition intensifies, Jesus lives with controversy and not engage them. And finally, verses 14 to 24, Jesus confirms his authority. 14 to 24, a long passage. Here, listen carefully. After the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews were therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Jesus confirms his authority, that he's from God, and he speaks for God. In verses 15 and 16, we see that the Judean Jew, they marvel at Jesus' understanding of religious matters. They knew he had no formal theological education and training under the rabbis. So the Jewish leaders actually like Jesus' teaching. They, they just don't like Jesus and they question his authority to teach. But in verse 17, verse 16, Jesus responded by explaining that his knowledge had come from the one who sent him, who is God the Father. He had not come from himself. Now, he meant that his knowledge was not dreamed up or arrived at through independent study. It was from God. You see, when you compare with the Jewish rabbis, they normally cited other more prominent rabbi as a source of their information to strengthen their point. You know, if you are in the academic world, when you write an academic paper, 
show me the footnote. <laughs> you need to have footnote. Bibliography, you know, the more the merrier, the more the better. And, and if you read some commentaries, half the page are just footnotes because they need to show you that I can trace, you know, I, I am supported by all these well-known scholars. And that's how they achieve their teaching and to be respected. But Jesus' teaching did not come from the rabbi or from self-study, but directly from God. Not through the secondary sources, but through the primary source. And verse 17 is so important in the whole passage because it unlocks the secret of knowing that Jesus is from God. Verse 17 says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus further claimed that the key to validating his claim that his teaching came from God was a person's willingness to do God's will. The, the normal way that the rabbi settled such debates was through discussion and debates, and finally we come to, this, to the conclusion, right? However, Jesus taught that the key factor was moral rather than intellectual. If anyone was willing to do God's will, not just to know God's will, God's truth, God would enable that one to believe that Jesus' teaching came from heaven, came from the Father, came from above. And for someone to do God's will, for, of course, it means to believe in Jesus as being sent by God. So the only condition for understanding the claim of Jesus is faith in Jesus, the Son of God. And such faith, such faith enables the believer to perceive the congruence of the moral character of Jesus with the divine will. You can see the congruency that truly all the teachings from Jesus is from the Father because I do God's will, and now I understand. And to make the point further that his teaching is from God, verse 18 says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus' point was the person who advanced his or her original idea will glorify him or herself. Even if you don't, you don't want to start out with the intention, that was not your original intention, but people will just give you the credit. Hey, you did that. It was done well. It was a good paper. It was well presented. The, the logic makes sense. The conclusion was just exceptional. They give you the credit. But Jesus reminds them that his desire is to glorify the one who sent him. And that desire demonstrated that he is righteous and made it unthinkable that he would be deceiving the people. I'm giving credit to others. I'm giving credit to God the Father. How dare, how dare I twist the words and how dare I misrepresent him. I better be truthful because I'm representing God the Father. And I'm not seeking my own agenda. 
not for my own glory, but for the glory of the Father. And therefore, he says, there is no falsehood in him. It's truthful. But not the Jewish leaders. Verse 19 says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? They claim that Moses has given them this teaching, but they did not carry out faithfully as a righteous man. They sought to kill Jesus, even though Moses made it clear in the Ten Commandments that thou shalt not murder. So obviously, they had not submitted to God's will as it came through Moses. And it is no wonder that they failed to understand Jesus' teaching. And when Jesus said that, the crowd answered in verse 20, You have a demon. You must be crazy. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus began to explain with one case study. That's verse 21. And Jesus answers them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. What work? When he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath. And you were all marveling about how I did that. And verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the Father, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, Moses incorporated the circumcision that began with Abraham into the Mosaic Code. And consequently, all the Jewish baby needs to be circumcised when they were born on the eighth day. And oftentimes, the eighth day will fall on the Sabbath. So do you perform circumcision or not? Well, the Jews have been doing that as a regular practice, as a standard operation. And Jesus is saying, how could you do that? Well, they can explain, because circumcision is more important than the violation of the Sabbath law. So this is of a higher importance and this is of a secondary importance. Then Jesus challenged them in verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, you're not breaking it, you're still doing, performing, working on the Sabbath by performing circumcision, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I make a man's whole body well, think, use your judgment, open your eyes. A circumcision is just a cutting of a skin, a small procedure. But I'm making a whole person who has crippled for 38 years, who needs to have a future, who are waiting for 38 years to be brought into the pool, hoping that he can be healed, and I'm bringing him a new life. A whole person. Why are you angry with me? Why do you want to kill me because of that? And verse 24 is very telling. Verse 24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus concluded by warning his hearers against judging according to appearance or superficiality. You see, their superficial judgment about what was legitimate activity on the Sabbath had resulted in superficial judgment about Jesus' work and person. He told them to stop doing that. 
They need to judge on the basis of righteous criteria to what is truly right, right according to God's word. You know, do not judge by appearance is so telling today. Though written 2,000 years ago, but the relevancy and application of that statement is so, so clear as we live our lives today. Do not judge by appearance. See, nowadays, image is everything. Image is everything. What you see gets all of you. And your eyes is the window of your soul. Image is so important that today we learn how to package ourselves because we are constantly under, under the screen time. That's all they see. They see your image on the screen. You are being presented under the lens, under the camera lens, iPhone lens, and all kinds of lenses. And under those lenses, all they see is your image. They can't feel you. They can't touch you. They can't interact with you. All they see is the image. And when you present yourself well, when you package yourself well, that's the conclusion they will draw of the kind of a person you are. I think Canon uh, cameras, commercial, many, many years ago, Still makes sense. Image is everything. No wonder Job's in chapter 31, verse 1, said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. And he was hoping that there was nothing unwholesome will penetrate his soul through his eyes. I make a covenant with my eyes. But judge with right judgment. With the world so saturated and so impressed with images, what would be the criteria for us to judge? And Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 gave us the answer. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, is it true? Whatever is honorable, does it honor Humanity, does it honor a dignity of a person? Does it honor God? Whatever is just, am I fair to that individual? Am I fair to this event? Or I am skewered in my judgment, showing partiality? Whatever is pure, what is my agenda? Am I pure? What is my intention? Is it pure? Whatever is pure. And whatever is lovely, when I do that, am I being cruel? Am I leaving a bad taste in people's mouth? Or is it a lovely thing to do? Whatever is commendable, when I do that, can I replicate that? When I, can I pass it around and tell people if there's any excellence, is it not only just good, but from good to great, excellent. The best interest of that person. If there's anything worthy of praise, what I do is it praise worthy. 
Can I add compliment to that and say, good job, I like that. I'm all for it. Think about these things. Philippians 4, verse 8. Think about these things in a world saturated with images. This is the answer. To see beyond the image and to see the substance behind the shade. Then not only the image, but the inside are the integral part. They are connected. You know, the word of Jesus came home to our generation as strongly as they did to his. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In a world where statements like, abort the babies, but save the trees, we are told, define your own agenda, be whatever you want, do whatever is right in your own, own eyes. Don't let others tell you. You are your own God. You are the captain of your soul. Just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. How many times do you hear that? In movies, in television, just follow your heart. How you feel. Just do it. Well, we have feelings, you know. And, and feelings is legitimate. God created our feelings. But feelings can send wrong signals. So our feelings better be undergirded by God's word, by truth, to make that feeling legitimate and biblical and godly. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. So my message to you this morning is to remind you and me that Jesus anchors himself in God's, the Father's timing and authority and he was unwavering in the midst of tension and controversy. And some of you going through opposition, tension right now, you may feel the pressure of how much more do I want to hold the line? How much longer do I want to hold the line to be disciple of Jesus Christ? And Jesus is offering himself as an example saying, Follow my agenda. Live with controversy. But know your authority. Your authority rests, anchors in God's word. So press on. Press on to live for me. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your godly model of facing increasing opposition and tension, and yet you held the line because you do the will of the Father according to God's timing. And as your disciples, Lord, teach us to know how to uphold the agenda of Christ in our lives because we are called to follow Jesus and to make disciples of all nations. Draw us to you, Lord. Draw us to you. If some of us are on the brink of compromising, if some of us already breach, breach the defense, some of us is already on the other side. Lord, your merciful hand will pull us back when we come back to you and surrender to your will because we are your disciples. 
Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.